everybody. Welcome back to the Mind Muscle Connection. I'm Joe Klimczewski with a special guest today, Dr. Jennifer Souders, a friend of mine, a physician who also happens to hold a handful of world powerlifting championships, world powerlifting records, actually. So what Jen wanted to do today, which I love, is create kind of a part two to our, our first episode on happiness. And Jen, what, what's super interesting about that is as soon as I was diving into the topic, I knew there was another layer. There was another gear to go into. There's happiness, but there's, there's something deeper. Somebody else immediately after they heard that podcast messaged me the same. And so I ended up in our Flexible Dieting Institute research review, doing a, a review or analysis of a study done on the difference between happiness and contentment. And what I learned at that time is, you know, this is not a novel concept. A lot of researchers have been looking at this for a long time. Matter of fact, the Gallup Life Satisfaction Poll tries to go to that deeper layer. And, and two researchers in particular that I looked at, one from Mexico, one from Denmark, they kind of looked at it from those two different sides of the coin. One professor thought that our affect just you know, our day-to-day -day happiness, how we perceive our moment-to-moment -moment happiness is really, really what drives us. The other professor thought, no, it's really the deeper sense of joy and contentment. So they did a study. They, they kind of went head-to-head -head with their two different theories and, and did a massive longitudinal survey of the Gallup Life Satisfaction po polling data uh, through, I think, 127 countries. And what they found was you could really almost elicit either response, just depending on how you ask the question. So there are people who are perhaps from a personality trait standpoint, a little more impulsive, a little bit more quick, quick to kind of expose their feelings, and they do live in the moment more. So you ask them about their happiness, and, and they're going to tell you how they feel right now. When you try to solicit information with a little more context, if you can think of yesterday from morning till evening, if you think of your life today versus your life a year ago, how is your happiness level? How do you feel in trying to categorize life contentment? Then people with a little more reflection, get, you get a little bit more context behind that and, and, and the, the answers kind of change. And then there's all kinds of great demographic information from country to country, continent to continent. But in terms of our particular audience that we're trying to curate to, hard, hard training people in, in trying to live a healthy lifestyle, people in performative sports, people in physique sport. These are things we don't often talk about. We're just go, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve. And a lot of times we don't even think about our thoughts or think about our contentment or happiness. So, so I know that's what attracted you to this topic. I'm so happy you wanted to go to this next layer with me. So let's, let's hear your initial thoughts. All right. Well, thanks, Joe. Yeah, you and Tyler, um, you covered this really nicely in the first part. And the two takeaways that I took away from listening to it was, uh, number one, Tyler's emphasis on process rather than outcome, which I think within the business world and with the personal development world, I mean, that has been a mantra for quite a while that, you know, really it's the process. And just like you, I mean, I've been lifting weights since I was 12. It's just who I am. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't not do it because it brings me this, this sense of, of deep happiness and it's part of who I am. Um, and it's really interesting because having perused a lot of the, uh, the addiction literature, we, we look 
and and there's you know there's a breakdown between neurotransmitters neurotransmitters excuse me between different kinds of uh, stimulating or quote unquote happiness producing types of events and so obviously drugs and alcohol are dopamine mediated and so you have an immediate uh, response to that but you can actually fatigue that over time obviously and that's where tolerance comes in where people you know need more alcohol to keep getting the same effect and those sorts of things whereas when we look at real contentment and things it's serotonin mediated and that's very interesting because when you think about it serotonin is the the deficient transmitter in states of depression so you know we're getting a lot of overlapping information from you know neurophysiology and addiction physiology and just the general state of happiness. So I just wanted to throw that out there is we actually have some neurotransmitters um, that, that mediate these different states and that can be used to sort of define um, a short-term thrill versus the long-term contentment. And I think you mentioned serotonin in the last podcast. So, you know, that, so the process is the thing that, um, that doesn't really seem to be, to me, dopamine mediated the dopamine comes in when you're on the stage in your first place and you get the trophy right mm -hmm. and then what and then it's gone i mean it lasts a, a little bit longer and then what how are you going to get your next fix right um so what do you do if if you want to capture that feeling again then you're going to do another competition and another competition and it can become, just as Tyler stated, because we're dopamine mediated in these pursuits, um, it can become um, almost like a, a quote unquote addiction. And I don't want to use it that way, but you can see where the neurotransmitter aspect of it drives you, despite all the negatives, um, drives you to another competition. Tyler was talking about how he would never sacrifice his time with his family his loved ones, his clients, his work, his meaningful activities in his life, he did not, he got imminent satisfaction and contentment from that and did not get a lot of additional happiness um, from the act of competition, but he lost a lot of active happiness during the prep for competition. And we too, I think it's funny because we should think about this as we are thinking about becoming competitors we ought to actually ask ourselves these questions is, you know, what does my motivation look like? What's driving me? Because we do know that addictive behavior is ongoing use despite negative consequences. And so um, the opposite side of happiness that I wanted to explore today was a little bit more about what happens when the negative consequences come in. So perhaps you've been entirely happy um, and very content being a competitor. I, I, I always was. I want to keep competing, you know, until I'm 90 or whatever. But, um, but something recently happened to me, or had some major surgery, and I can't compete now. And um, I may never be able to compete again. So uh, the first thing that comes to mind is identity. And I'd like to hear your thoughts about this. You work with a lot of clients. Um, we, we, as we transform our bodies or as we move through life, 
you define yourself as an entrepreneur in a certain environment and you have a skill set and this is your life's work and I have my life's work and we define ourselves as I am this or I am that. When we compete, it's like I am a bodybuilder or I am a cyclist or I am a triathlete or I am, you know, an Olympic lifter or whatever. Um, and so, you know, how much have you seen in your clients, Joe, where, where people assume identity and confuse that with contentment? It, it's, it's everything. And, and I'm a little bit weird because I've been thinking about these kinds of things since a teenager. And so when, when you start j just getting a little bit deeper into the philosophies and worldviews that you can have and, and look at how different people think and, and how we can even change our own perspectives. Although because of self-protection, we often don't because we do find identity in those worldviews and in those, those uh, you know, sub identities we have, we, we find something and we, we latch onto it. Uh, so I have, I have thought about this for most of my life and, and I'm okay at changing identities. I, I don't put all of my, my ego in one bucket, so to speak. And, and something just happened this week that I've been talking to a close friend who's having this kind of almost existential crisis right now, because this person has worked at, at a certain company for a long time, devoted a lot of life to that and a lot of meaning and identity is there. And now they are afraid to leave because what next? That's a big, scary unknown. These, this is where I'm known and I know everybody else. And, 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 and there's that it's sunk cost bias. I have so much in this that I'm afraid to leave it because then my identity has to you know, be exposed. I have to start over. I have to create those layers and orbits again. And so I, I love the fact that you started in biology. That's where I always go. You know, from all the psychological models, everything else, I, I come right back down to what's happening physiologically because that's going to be the foundation of everything. You can't have the, the kinds of thoughts you want, even going into neuroplasticity, unless you've kind of trained your brain to think that way. And that's a long-term process. I was just listening to a, a pretty current uh uh, lecture by Dr. Goldman from Harvard, you know, the guy who, who wrote emotional intelligence and social intelligence. And he was talking about kind of the new phenomena of, of attention. He wrote this book, Focus. And, and he goes all the way back to as children and, and as parents and caregivers for those children, how you create those context switches or the, the capacities for empathy and so forth. And, and, and pulling that into the conversation just about identity you, you have to have a massive amount of personal security to do that, to say, this is who I am, the role I play here with my family or as a competitor or somebody who just recreationally loves to train hard and be healthy. Like those, those are all facets of who I am, but no single one defines me. And I'm okay showing those different facets to the world or focusing on one at a time. But I will say this, Jen, to your question, my clients and friends who don't have that ability the ones who really latch onto this one single identity as a competitor or something like that, and they can't let it go, there's a death struggle. And I, I, I really think there's just a lot of, of vulnerability and psychological self-exposure to let that go. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I know that's at least where we have to start addressing those things and almost come alongside people and say, it's, it's not only okay to do that, here's here's the ramifications. Here's what you're likely going to have to experience. Let's do that together. You know, we, we need people around us. This is where our social, you know, species propensity comes into play. 
we're just not going to step out there and risk things on our own very easily. Yeah. And going back, you know, phylogenetically, uh, maybe even a little bit earlier than early childhood, but what did Homo sapiens need um, to survive and what are our basic signaling mechanisms in, in the autonomic nervous system is threat versus safety. Mm-hmm. So as Homo sapiens, we needed to accurately um, uh, you know, assess whether another sapiens was, uh, was tribe or non-tribe, you know, did we, did we feel safe around them? And those, those pathways are newer, um, in the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system and the old threat ones are the sympathetic nervous system. And, you know, that underlies, um, a lot of anxiety and it's the, you know, it, it underlies a lot of self-protective mechanisms. And I believe it's one of the things, you know, I've been thinking about this for decades too, which is why we got along and you and Tyler and I were in this, this uh, strategic con- consciousness meeting and stuff. And we love these topics. Um, but, you know, part of someone giving up an identity is it exposes them to threat. Um, they lose safety and they, they change is a threat loss of control is a threat. It's not safe. Um, and doing the same thing over and over is, is safe. And yet it, it's growth hampering as well. So one of the things that, that comes up if someone is, let's say someone's struggling in competition, and we use physique competition um, as an example. I've, I'm a physique competitor too. Um, but you know, now do I have that identity? I've had um, a major you know, surgery, which may take me out of anything other than sort of recreational strength training permanently. I don't know yet. It's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to know. Um, but you know, there was, there was literally a sense of grief about Mm -hmm. not being able to compete again. And that's, I was sort of surprised by that because actually I've been really process oriented and there's nothing actually more joyful to me than like yesterday with, with legs day, where I finally put just 45 pounds on my neck and back and was able to squat it 10 times. I mean, it was like, oh my goodness, this has been months in the making um, to, to squat a bare bar, unfreaking believable. So the process to me is just so, so joy inducing, so fulfilling. Um, I, you know, I love a comeback in a really strange way. I love it because um, it, it's so, it, it, it's so health focused and so open um, and you are vulnerable, but vulnerability is again, one of those things that it's, yeah, the, the, the vulnerable members of the herd are left behind to get eaten by the wolves too, right? So vulnerability, uh, it's what we need to feel safe, but it's also what can make us unsafe. So it's a, it's a difficult phenomenon. But yeah, I was really surprised at this sense of grieving and um, grieving the loss of being a competitor and not that, you know, competition preps and stuff are, are fun or anything like that, but I never really minded them because I think I, I just enjoyed the process and particularly for powerlifting. I just love the sport. I love it. I just, I naturally love the challenge of, you know, getting stronger or, you know, as we age, I'm not, I'm not lifting like what I did um, when I was 30, you know, 
in my fifties, I'm not going to, but I want to be the best I can be for who I am and where I am. Um, and so that, that grief was kind of interesting as, um, as sort of like, is it a loss of identity? So these are the kind of questions that I think we need to ask ourselves. All of us are going to age unless something tragic happens. All of us are going to have illnesses and injuries pop up and all of us are going to have these setbacks. And so all of us really ought to become a little bit cognitively better prepared for them so that we are not blindsided by them and we are not so so stuck in, in a loss of control and, and in a state of threat that then we can't move forward. Does that make sense? You, you use the word cognitive, which I'm going to stick on for a second, because that's what these two researchers from Mexico and Denmark were, were discussing, affect versus cognitive approaches to happiness. And the people who had that more abiding, sustained sense of joy and contentment were the ones who had a higher cognitive impulse toward the things of life, life satisfaction. And uh, you know, you, you you probably remember this, Jen, but in, in one of my master's degrees, the one in writing, it, it, as a narrative nonfiction writer, my my whole focus in the four years I was there, my reading list, my, my thesis was a blend of personality and developmental psych because I was really exploring intergenerational parenting topics. And on the developmental psych side, that's that's another reason why I think I'm a little bit more prepared, as you just mentioned, because cognitively, I've thought about these changes and seasons of life. And, and I too, five years ago, had a, had a knee surgery, kind of an abrupt injury, shattered all the hyaline cartilage on one, one condyle. And, you know, when you look at that photo from inside the knee and all of that nice, smooth, white, shiny hyaline cartilage is just gone and fractured and it's just exposed bone, you know, my, my orthopedic surgeon who happened also to be a, a former NFL, you know, football player you know, said this, this could be it. Like, like you, you gotta be, you, you may be the water aerobics guy. Like it may hurt for you to even walk. And so I also had that massive sense of, Whoa, like this morning I was squatting 365 and now I may never squat again. Luckily I, I you know, I just twist a fade, good, good soft cartilage meniscus and so forth. I'm, I'm doing fine. And I'm, I'm, I'm tempering what I'm doing. So I don't create further damage. But with an upcoming neck surgery, things like that, like I, I have to see that someday my 40 years of aggressive training, which already peaked maybe a decade ago and I'm coming back down, my sense of identity no longer comes from, you know, grr, I'm going to go in and set a PR today and go to a fitness camp and deadlift 500 pounds. It's going to be like, hey, I'm taking care of myself. That that was me. Look, look at those photos. Look what I used to do. That was fun. But now I'm this guy and I'm still enjoying it to the level I can still in the same community. It's still part of my identity. I'm just becoming that elder statesman of it and enjoying what I can. But that really did instantly kind of pull me back into seeing things from that cognitive perspective. The affect of feeling that grief and dealing with that transition was tough, but and it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you just have a thought, make a decision like, okay, now I'm happy again. It's like, it takes time. You got to process that and you work through it. And then gradually you see that, that, that safety is still there. You're still part of that tribe. You're just playing a different role and enjoying it developmentally at a, at a new level. Yeah. And I, I, I remember you spoke about the Harvard study at the end of the first, the part one podcast. And that was so relevant because um, here's where I 
this is where I wound up and it sounds exactly like where you wound up, um, as you mentioned, being the elder statesman. I mean, what I realized I was grieving was not getting on the platform or getting on the stage. What I missed was all of the other people and the journeys that we took together and um, the time we spent together and, and the joys and the sorrows of, you know, failing or not failing in your lifts or, you know, coming in last and hugging the person who comes in first on the stage or what have you. But really what it was, was, um, you know, it was, it was seeing my bros in the gym. Um, it, it, you know, it was seeing the people that were in posing class, you know, it was going to the meets and having these friends that I've made from around the world. And it's the only time and place that we get to see each other, you know, and it, those things are just so precious and it's your deepest relationships. And so, you know, as, as you take this identity um, forward of yourself, and this is what I would like people to take away from this podcast is remember what really um, did bring you joy. And you just need to do some self-introspection and see whether really it's the process and the people and the joy that the actual activity brings to your life. And if it does, then you really don't ever have to quote unquote, give it up. As you were saying, you know, I'm going to just do what I can do as I can do it and love that I do it because I wouldn't be me without lifting, even if it's just a bare bar, you know, and maybe someday I'll go in and do a meet on a lark. And maybe I would just maybe I'd press anything between like 45 and hundred pounds. And you know what? I wouldn't give a rip. I really wouldn't. I would just do it. I don't care coming in dead last. It doesn't matter. It, it, it would be for me every day is, um, is a, an amazing competition. I am competing so hard every day um, just to, you know, to do walking, to do any cardio, to do any resistance, to do any, anything. Um, that it's all, it's all a victory. You know, it's like every day at the end of the day, I could give myself a medal around my neck. Absolutely. And, and that's that comeback you talked about, but you know, I would also, as just one, one caveat before we leave, you know, I would say for some people, you don't really have the identity you think you do in a situation or community like this. For some people, you think you're getting that and, and it's just maybe a sport or an endeavor that br brings you more and more frustration because your identity is more tied to performance instead of process, going back to what you said, Jen. So I know a lot of people, even though it is risky uh, and, and you feel vulnerable, I know a lot of people who said, man, this sport or this, this community, it's just too much or it's not what, I, what, it's not what it used to be to me. And they'll go off and they'll start rock climbing or running or playing tennis or do something else competitive and athletic but just outside of this, and that brings them greater contentment and, and long-term happiness. But it's for them, it was always the process. And this was just maybe the best place at that time in their life, but it doesn't mean you have to be there forever. Exactly. And that is, that was also one of the conclusions I reached is there are some things I used to do. Um, I used to play golf, um, for example, and um, I used to golf with my dad, whom I lost um, at the start of the pandemic. So um, I just decided that, you know, um, competing didn't allow room for that. And as a tribute to him, I'd like to resume the game. Um, and again, yeah, I think that that helps to connect us to who and what is really important to feel the process 
yes, but also to feel um, we all have different selves. I don't think we have one single self where we put on a certain self when we go in the gym, another one when we go into the meeting room, uh, another one when we're with our families, you know, and, and many others in between. It's like we change our clothes for different events as well. Um, but, but this can be sort of your true, this can be as close to your true self that you're just simply wanting to be out doing and um, just being in the moment is, is really um, the thing that people should have the happiness coming from, because that's really the contentment, who you are and how you are in the moment. Got to end there. That's perfect. Dr. Jennifer Saunders, you are so amazing. I appreciate you coming in. We will definitely head back if you agree. But for everybody watching and listening again, thanks so much. We are the Mind Muscle Connection. Hopefully, you will continue to, to come back and, and dive into the, some of these deep topics and how it can relate to your part in this community we're describing. So we'll see you next time in the Mind Muscle Connection.